This is CQ Future, and I'm Sean Zeller. We began this series last year to examine how the pandemic was influencing public policy decisions. This week, we are reprising some of our podcasts to mark a year since our world changed. In our first show, we looked at the future of urban transportation with Sam Zimbabwe, the director of transportation in Seattle. In major cities across the country, lockdowns and office closures caused public transit ridership to decline by as much as 90% during the pandemic's dark early days. It's rebounded some, but public transit fares remain way down. Only federal aid has kept the trains and buses running. At the same time, traffic in many urban downtowns has not rebounded, and the pandemic has allowed transportation officials like Zimbabwe to think about how to remake American streets for a post-COVID world. Here's our conversation. Okay, Sam, welcome to the show. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your job there in Seattle? Yeah, so I'm the director of the Seattle Department of Transportation, and we're the city's transportation department. Uh, so we we own the streets, uh, we manage the public right of way, uh, we deal with things like bridges and traffic signals, and uh, we also both fund a portion of the regional bus transit system, and then we own the uh, Seattle streetcar and uh, operate that in partnership with uh, King County as well. And how has the virus affected how people are getting around in Seattle? So it's changed things pretty radically very quickly. Uh, We've seen about a 50% reduction uh, across the city, uh, even more going in and out of downtown of of vehicles uh, traveling over the course of a day. Um, And so, you know, Seattle's a place that has had pretty persistent congestion as we've been one of the fastest growing big cities over the last decade. Um, And that sort of vanished overnight. uh, And roads are pretty open, pretty clear of cars. It actually has meant that people are driving faster and we've had a little bit of an uptick in uh, safety problems with with people driving. But uh, it's really changed in some ways pretty radically and very quickly the types of problems that we are used to solving on a daily basis. How's it affected your ability in government to manage the transportation system? Well, you know, I think it's changing it in in multiple ways. Uh, We've also seen very steep declines in people riding transit. And people riding transit has been a, a critical for our success as a city, bringing people throughout the region and, and uh, making it so people don't need to own a car or need to drive our, their car less. Uh, it's helped us manage congestion. Uh, and so one of our tools is, uh, is a little bit out of our playbook right now. Now, I know one of the goals, I mean, indeed, has been to get more people on public transit. But the virus, as you say, has driven people away. It may not be safe for some time to ride public transit. And people are going to migrate back to their cars. But at the same time, you have people working from home. And that may be something that persists even after the virus is gone. So how do you see this having a lasting impact on urban transportation? We've seen an increased demand for people walking and biking uh, for multiple reasons, both for recreation as they seek to get around their neighborhoods uh, safely and with a little bit more distance than, than, than usual, uh, but also for essential transportation. If, if transit uh, can't carry the same number of people that it, it used to be able to, um, we really are going to depend on other modes and people having multiple choices of how to get around so that we can preserve the capacity of transit for, for people who, have, who don't have other choices or who need to take transit. Um, we, that we don't 
force people into, into their own cars if they're looking for other options. I think that the future of work and telework is going to be very interesting. Um, I think traditionally, telework has had a marginal impact on travel demand. You see Mondays and Fridays often have much less traffic as people telework those days more than others. Um, what we've seen with a large portion of the workforce immediately shifting to telework is that across-the-board reduction in travel demand, which um, frees up a lot of space in, in, in many ways to think creatively about how we use our streets in this period and going forward. So I think we're going to have to build out uh, an infrastructure that doesn't exist, a connected infrastructure for walking and biking that uh, doesn't exist everywhere in Seattle or everywhere in, in cities across the country, uh, and also think very creatively about how we use our streets to manage both the demand that we see today, but also the cities we want to be as we emerge from this pandemic. Do you envision at some point that offices in downtown Seattle will reopen and that people from the suburbs will be looking to drive in and you'll have to cope with potentially congestion coming back? I do think that offices will reopen uh, and, and people will, will seek to come back in, into and out of downtown. And, and that's pretty critical to our economy as a city and, and our success overall. Uh, as a region, um, I think that there's probably a number of factors that will limit that. Or I've got two young kids that are learning from home right now uh, with greater or lesser success. But I think that that's going to limit people's ability to, to come back to workplaces uh, if kids are still at home and out of school. And I think some of those things will likely happen in conjunction with transit's ability to carry more people. Uh, Seattle as a region, the Puget Sound region has been investing in major investments in transit capacity over the last uh, couple of decades, sort of catching up in a large way. Uh, and those will still continue to be critically important for linking our suburbs to downtown Seattle going forward as well. You went to Seattle after a, a stint here in Washington, D.C. to help them expand a streetcar network. Where do you see public transit going? How does it go on absent a vaccine or a cure for the disease? Well, I think there's a lot that we still don't know about the disease and its, its spread. You know, right now, our transit systems are running at lower capacity. Both they're running fewer trips and they're, uh, in, in some cases, limiting the number of people on every vehicle to maintain some social distance. Um, as we know more, whether that's a vaccine or, or more about how it spreads or sort of what levels really lead to outbreaks, that may change. And, and I think a lot of what we see here is, is people's individual concerns about their safety from a, from a health standpoint uh, is going to keep them off of transit. And, and if, we can, if we can address those concerns in whatever way, uh, we, may, we may see a change in how things are going. Transit's always been something that required a public subsidy. If fewer people are riding, does the cost become an issue? I would say that every every form of transportation has always required a subsidy. Uh, it's a it's a good that we all share, and it's a resource that that is needed to to move people and goods efficiently across across cities and regions. Um, transit has a more explicit subsidy that we see because of how how we budget for it. But uh, but every form of transportation has some form of subsidy. I will say that the way that that we fund transit, both from a rider perspective, from the you know the user fee, that the fare that people pay when they get on and off. Transit, transit vehicle, but also some of where those subsidies come from are, uh, in terms of tax revenues, are, are very affected right now by the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, when we've seen transit ridership decline by 75% across the board here in, in Seattle, that has a big impact on the bottom line. At the same time, 
it's critically important and we might need actually to, to double down on some of those investments that we make in transit, both from a capital perspective uh, and from an operating perspective, if we need to maintain more capacity on, on vehicles. So if we're running, uh, if we need to run uh, more trips to enable the same number of people to, to ride a bus, that's going to end up having a, a cost as well. So those are, those are all going to be choices that we have to face as cities and, and regions and transit agencies about what we want our transportation system to do. Um, I can say that we in, in the city are looking at uh, sort of 40 to $50 million a year budget impacts over, the, over this year and the next two years, just in terms of our revenues coming in at the same time as we have massive capital needs for our streets, bridges, and the transit system. Have you given any thought there in Seattle about how to bridge that gap or whether to make some cutbacks? Yeah, well, we'll definitely have to make some cutbacks. I mean, there's no way around. At this point, uh, given our financial uh, outlook, um, it, you know, there's, there's no way to easily plug a 40 to $50 million hole with what we've got um, and, and what, what we, with the tools that we have available. Um, I think that this is a place that uh, in investment as a country in infrastructure is going to be critical to our recovery uh, overall economically. Um, and we've seen that uh, be a, a critical piece of emergence from, from economic downturns the last couple of times that we've had uh, downturns. And, and I think this is a place where the federal government uh, can and should also step in to, to help cities and help keep our economies going. That's a big debate here right now in Washington, aid to states and localities. What is Seattle looking for? What could Seattle use from Congress to help? Well, I'll admit to having a very parochial uh, transportation perspective, so I, I have more detail on that. But it's you know we've seen impacts across the board across the city, and and um, as I talked to Mayor Durkin and and uh, the uh, the other leaders across the city here in Seattle, like the, everybody is feeling this impact, whether we are working on housing and, and homelessness issues, uh, whether we're working on schools and, and education, uh, the way that we support, uh, the way that the government uh, generates revenue, in, in, especially in the state of Washington, but I think this is true across, across the country, is very much based on economic activity. And if as soon as economic activity starts to uh, slow, cities feel it very quickly and, and have to make very difficult decisions at the same time as we are also employing people with with very good living wage, uh, high skilled jobs, both both office and labor, and we're critical to to keeping the the, the economy going overall. So you know, from a, from a strictly from a transportation perspective, I think that there's there's opportunities for the federal government to continue investments uh, in the ways that it that it currently does, uh, and that's both formula funding uh, through states for road and transit projects, um, but also uh, discretionary programs like build and infra, uh, where there's just a lot of demand out there, um, and and uh, those projects are targeted towards economic development and economic recovery already. Um, so there's a lot of different different tools that the federal government has in in place already that can be avenues to getting resources out to cities and and states that are suffering. There's still talk here in Washington about a big infrastructure bill. It was put on hold, I think, because. Some said it's not directly connected to the virus, but Speaker Pelosi has mentioned it recently. We had Governor Cuomo in town to talk with President Trump about the possibility of an infrastructure bill. Is that something you'd like to see there in Seattle? 
Absolutely. The scale of what we we were facing before the pandemic in terms of infrastructure challenges is, is pretty massive. And we've got aging infrastructure. Um, we had to close actually one of the most important bridges in the city, the highest volume bridge in the city because of structural problems. Uh, uh, cracks that had developed in the concrete. Um, we closed it on March 23rd. So right at the peak of the pandemic, we had to also take a major piece of our infrastructure out of out of commission. And um, you know the the scale of those pieces of infrastructure. When it was built, it was built with federal support, critical to the project. As we think about the aging infrastructure that's across the country, um, cities have a lot of that within our portfolios uh, that that we also need help to to get out of a an infrastructure deficit that's been persistent and growing. Uh, and I think that also has happened at the federal level, uh, where we haven't seen changes in in the federal gas tax since 1993. Uh, the the share of federal infrastructure investments have fallen as a percentage of GDP by half over the last 35 years. We were already facing this infrastructure deficit before. The pandemic hit, and and now it's only become worse. You were very early there in Seattle in closing some residential streets. Can you talk about what your thinking was there? I know you've mentioned increased demand for pedestrians and for bikes, but how did you select which streets to close and why? Sure. So we have about a 200-mile uh, bicycle network across the city um, here in Seattle, and, and 45 miles of that is what we call neighborhood greenways. And these are low-volume residential streets that uh, connect to important things like parks and schools and neighborhood retail, but also into this larger 200-mile network. And pretty early on in the pandemic, uh, we started to hear from from residents uh, saying that they were trying to both you know, have places, have ways to get to, to work or, or things that they needed to get to, shopping, but also looking for recreation opportunities. Uh, we were seeing crowding in some of our big parks. And so um, we built on our neighborhood greenway network, which was already in place and had some traffic calming and, you know, directional signage and sort of low, low cost investments that we'd made in these streets. We closed those to through traffic. So people who live on those streets are still have, still have all the access that they need for themselves for deliveries for, for everything else, uh, but we closed them off for through traffic. And so um, uh, pretty quickly we, we saw increases in um, uh, biking on those streets, decreases in, in traffic, pretty good levels of, of walking, even though travel demand overall was down uh, pretty substantially across the city. Uh, and so we decided to make those permanent and now we're working to uh, at exactly what that means. Um, so uh, we've got about 23 miles of what we call stay healthy streets. We're still looking to expand that program, uh, but also looking to maintain these these upgrades that we've done with very temporary materials uh, because they've been very successful so far. Now, the expansion of bike networks has been a trend across the country. It was the case here in Washington when you were working for our transportation department. You've gone to Seattle where it's going on. We know it's happening in New York. Are you talking to other cities and and coordinating with them about the future of how you see public transportation within cities? Absolutely. The city transportation directors is a pretty small group of of folks and we're pretty tight knit. So we we have a little bit of healthy competition among us, I think. So, you know, our stay healthy streets, we we were inspired by what Oakland, California had done and uh, Minneapolis and Denver. Uh, and then we we took it to another level of making it permanent. And then other people are trying to race ahead of us and do other things. So we're all, you know, it's a good healthy competition. I think that what what a lot of us see is that the trajectory that we were on before of, of increasing um, 
rapidly, sort of aggressively in, increasing multimodal options, making sure that people who, who live in cities or work in cities have uh, choices about how they get around is something that we need to continue and continue to invest in uh, and can't walk away from. So every transportation director, every mayor is thinking about what the future is. And I, I think it's it's on the same trajectory that we were already on. We saw, we've seen increases in people walking and people biking. Transit's still going to play a really critical role in in getting people where they need to go. Um, and we don't want to walk back from what uh, the investments that we've made over the last, uh, you know, probably decade or so or decade or more that have made cities into into more multimodal places. Well, Sam, we appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this with our listeners. We hope you're past the worst of it in Seattle and can move on with your work. Thanks, and hope you're past the worst of it in D.C. too. Now to Jessica Worman, who covers transportation policy for CQ Roll Call. The federal government provides billions in aid to the states to fund transportation, and there is a bill being debated right now to extend that aid. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So can you bring us up to speed on what's happening with the transportation legislation? Okay, so I'm going to give you like the uh, last year. I'm going to start with the, at the sort of beginning. <laughs> In July of last year, the Senate uh, Environment and Public Works Committee passed a $287 billion five-year highway bill. The House hadn't done anything at that point, which is sort of unusual. The House is going to mark up now what it has most recently introduced, which is a $494 billion five-year highway, rail, uh, transit bill, a surface transportation bill. They have until September 30th to pass this bill before the previous bill, the FAST Act, which I think was approved in 2015, expires. So a significant difference in price on the two bills. Is there a big difference in policy on the two bills? Well, there is. And and let me just go into, let me just tell you, the price difference is in part because the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee is taking up transit, rail, and highways. The Senate still has a couple places they need to go to get this done. They have to uh, have the transit portions and the rail portions of their bill approved yet. They've got basically... um, Banking and I think commerce still have parts of the bill to take up. But yes, there. To answer your question, there are huge policy uh, differences between them. Peter DeFazio, who's the chairman of the House uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee, said he basically wants a transformative bill. He wants to rethink the entire Eisenhower Highway system, and really, his bill kind of is, is sort of a climate change bill. If I'm being honest, it's it's a bill that works to get rid of carbon emissions. It has huge investments in rail. That's not really what the Senate has done. The Senate is in kind of a version of what we've seen in the past. It does have a climate change title in it, which is the first of its kind and very unusual for a Republican um, majority to, to pass such legislation. But we're really talking about apples and oranges with these bills. The, only, the, the biggest thing that they have in common really is that they reauthorize highways, but the policy differences are vast. You mentioned a climate change bill. We're in the midst of a pandemic, COVID-19. Are the bills a COVID-19 bill? Are they reacting to the different ways that Americans are getting around and will probably get around in the future because of the disease? No, they are not. (laughs) And that actually was, I I don't want to toot my own horn, but that actually kind of plugs a story that I just 
had published today. Uh, I mean, the bill, the House bill has $83.1 billion for, uh, to help basically highway and local transportation departments deal with the economic um, ramifications of this crisis. But what it doesn't do is think about the fact that people really are using transportation in an entirely different way now that this um, pandemic has occurred. They're staying at home, they're avoiding transit, and it's not clear and very hard to predict how that's going to play out you know, in the months ahead. I mean, are these changes going to be temporary or are they part of sort of a permanent shift in the way Americans do business? The, the Senate bill was passed in July. Nobody knew what the coronavirus was. And the House bill really was drafted in January before the coronavirus really became a very big issue. So they don't really take into account these possibilities. But that said, it's it's hard to figure out, you know, it's hard to predict because it's such an uncertain time and so, on so many levels that it's hard to predict what the permanent impact of this crisis is going to be. So at this point, lawmakers are looking at the future the way they looked at the past, that it's a combination of rail and transit. And if you're interested in climate change, you want to encourage more rail and more public transportation and less use of cars. Absolutely. And and they are looking at this. And you know what? To be fair to them, really, the highway policy hasn't changed significantly. And, and we've been able to pretty accurately predict what you know transportation is going to be, be able to look like for years. Every time we've done this highway bill, we've you know, we haven't had this sort of seismic change that we've had because of the pandemic. So you kind of almost can't blame them to a degree. That said, um, you know, we went from one existential crisis, climate change, which still exists to another, the pandemic. So um, it's a pretty quick, quick shift of the gears. What about bridging the gap? If, if they're seeing the future as more or less similar to the past, at least in the current moment, Many fewer people are buying tickets to get on subway systems and buses. Many fewer people are going to the gas station to fill up their pump. And those are the ways we fund highways. Users are part of the way we fund transit. So how, do, how are they thinking about bridging that gap? Well, they are. And that's actually, that actually raises another very, very important question. For years, the Highway Trust Fund, which is paid for by your federal gas taxes, has been what is paid for, paid for roads, bridges, and transit. Um, People aren't using gas to the degree that they they did before. They're just not buying as much. They're not buying as much gas. Their cars are more fuel efficient. They're in some cases upgrading to electric vehicles or hydrogen power. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why the highway trust fund does not have the same bang for the buck that it used to have. Add to that the fact that we haven't really raised the gas tax since 1993. Um, so you're basically using 1993 dollars to pay for 2020 transportation. Uh, they are going to have to do a fundamental shift in how they fund highways. And they all know this, but the problem is they're just not really ready for the next way of doing this. There seems to be pretty widespread agreement for having a user fee pay for, you know, pay for transportation, for federal transportation programs. The question is, what does that user fee look like? Um, it strikes, you know, it, it, it strikes people that a uh, gas tax isn't going to work. There's this thing called the VMT, which is vehicle miles traveled. That could be an answer, but it's not ready for prime time. So in the short term, what they're going to have to do is what they've done when they've had shortfalls in the past. They're just going to have to borrow from the general revenue. How are you seeing this playing out with the two bills, the Senate bill and the House bill being so different? Is it likely that they'll reach a compromise or will they kick the can with an extension of existing authorities? Nobody wants to kick the can, but it's 2020, so it's an election year. You've got a pandemic, so we've got our attention elsewhere. And, 
you know, it's very hard to get these things done in, in, in these years anyway. These are very seismic differences between these two policies. And it's, it's really hard at this point. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but it's hard at this point to imagine that they will come up with a solution between them. What's more, most likely, I would think, even though they don't want this, is a short-term solution, a short-term extension until they can kind of get back to it in the future. So, Jessica, a lot of money is at stake here, billions of dollars over five years. Are any lawmakers talking about taking a wait-and-see approach, maybe holding off and seeing how the pandemic plays out and whether it has a lasting impact on how people get around? The, The big consensus is that infrastructure would probably be a good juice for the economy. So the, the instinct is let's pass something so that we have this these jobs that would come from, you know, from, I guess, laying asphalt or blacktop or whatever. Jessica, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Listeners can find your work at rollcall.com. From all of us at CQ Roll Call, thank you for listening. Thank you.